us as we sing our praises to God together on this third Sunday of Advent. The light glowing from our Advent wreath is burning brighter. This radiance warms our hearts and fills us with joy. The Lord has done great things for us. Let us rejoice. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Light three candles, see them glow, brightly so that all may know how three candles show the way, making our darkness bright as God's day. Those who go out weeping 
bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Dear God, we carry many burdens and worry over many things. Help us to hear your promise in this Advent season, that in hearing we may receive the Spirit's gift of joy. And may our spirits be kept sound at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us as we continue singing our praises to our God together.
We ask all of these things in your name, Lord. Let's sing that chorus once again.
Good morning. This morning's reading is from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove you from all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We um, wanted to make you aware of a couple of things happening in the life of the church. Um, tonight at 5 o'clock, we'll be meeting back here and uh, engaging in a, a gathering to sing the Messiah. And uh, you get to be part of the choir. We have a choir, we have an orchestra, and they'll be doing a lot of the music, but there are I think five or six of the songs that uh, we will do as a congregation join in. We've got copies of the music. If you don't happen to have it memorized, which probably you don't. Um, but uh, it's a great time together sharing in this, this amazing piece of music that inspires, has inspired people for many years. Uh, also note that beginning next Sunday, we go we have four weeks of just one service at 10 o'clock. So we don't have the various services, but just one service, 10 o'clock. You see on the back of the bulletin the schedule of activities. And I realize a number of you our students, and you'll be going home, and we pray that that you have a great Christmas break. But for those who are here, just please take note of that schedule. And also Christmas Eve, if you're here, service at 5 and a service at 7. They're similar, the 5 o'clock service, a little more geared to children. We have a children's time and things, uh, but there's a lot of similarities in the two services. So we hope you're able to be a part of that as well. Um, I'm trying to think to myself, this thing coming on there, there's got to be a sermon illustration in that someplace. I'm trying to figure out what it is. But the other thing is, it's like playing a game to try to guess what the words are underneath that. I don't know if you were doing that or not. Maybe we should, we'll, we'll maybe turn off that speaker. or that, That's not a speaker. That's a projector, isn't it? Um, anyway, um, take a moment. Let's, let's stand and share a word of greeting with others here in worship today.
So I am, I'm quickly discovering the more that I read it and the more that I think about it, that Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is one of my favorites. It, there's just so much in this small book that um, Nouwen writes about and that touches my heart. And I, I wanted to read you just a, a small passage from that book that I think, I think sets the tone for, for what I want us to think about today. He's talking about the prodigal son who has left home, gone into the far country, and, and what he may have thought to get him to that point and what he may have been thinking as he went away. And now it writes, it goes something like this. I'm not so sure anymore that I have a safe home. And I observe other people who seem to be better off than I. I wonder how I can get to where they are. I try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. When I fail, I feel jealous and resentful of others. And when I succeed, I fear that they are jealous and resentful of me. I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't get what I so much desire and will lose what I already have. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or saying. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom. And I start dividing the world into people who are for me and people who are against me. I wonder if anyone really cares. I start looking for validations of my distrust. And wherever I go, I see them. And I say, no one can ever be trusted. And then I wonder whether anyone really loved me. The world around me becomes dark. My heart goes heavy. My body is filled with sorrows. My life loses meaning. I am a lost soul. When I think about that passage, it, it's, for me, it sort of sets the context of what the prophet Zephaniah is trying to communicate to Israel and to us. I suspect Zephaniah is one of those prophets that you might be thinking, wait, that's in the Bible? We probably don't read that one a lot. It's small. It's stuck in the minor prophets. But it's a powerful three chapters. In these three chapters, God is, is saying to Israel, is telling Israel, there's great trouble here. The consequences of your sin are overwhelming you. And we all live with consequences of our sin. Our sin, other people's sin. The consequences of our sin. We live in a broken world where there are terrorists and greed. And people living on the streets 
and people committing heinous acts of violence and accidents and death. We live in a world that is broken because of the consequences of our sin. But we also are broken people because of sin. As now and described, we're fearful, we're distrusting, we're anxious, we feel shame and guilt. And, and I don't know that any of us would say, I love my life, every single thing about it, just as it is, I wouldn't want anything to change. And it, sin creates broken relationships. We hurt each other. We say things. We do things. Sometimes we don't mean it. Let's be honest. Sometimes we do. We're hurt, and so we hurt. And we, have, we live in a world in which our relationships are often framed by insecurity, mistrust and distrust, apprehension. We live in a broken world, broken people, broken stuff, broken relationships. And it's all because of sin. But the greatest, the, the greatest problem with sin, the greatest, deepest consequence of sin is the distance it has created between us and God. And in fact, I would argue that all the other things, a broken world, the broken lives, a broken relationships, all of that is the result of the distance between us and God. Adam and Eve in the garden walk with God. They're close to God. But when they sin, that is broken. And they no longer trust God. They no longer see God as he is. And the issue is not that God has run away because of their sin. They ran away from God. And the problem with you and me is not that we sin. And so God says, well, I'm not hanging around you anymore. And he runs away. The issue is we sin and it creates a skewed, twisted view of who God is. And we run from God. Not realizing that the further we run from God, the further we are running away from the solution to life. We are running toward death and destruction and pain and brokenness. Our creator. And we try. You know, we, we do our best to try to, to, to close the gap between us and God. But quite honestly, it's a lot like being out in an orchard and you see a tree that's about 30, 40 feet high and there's an apple, perfect apple you want and it's about 20 feet off the ground and you keep trying to jump up and grab it. Our best efforts don't even get close. And sometimes we just feel resigned to the distance between us and God. And the problem with that is that distance creates apathy in us. Because if we believe God is so distant that he doesn't care, that doesn't matter to him, that we are unimportant to him, that distance causes us to simply say, then it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I treat other people. God doesn't care how other people treat me. 
What do I care if anybody else gets help from me? It's all about me. And we live our lives trying to manipulate people to love us, to care for us, to help us, to serve us. We live our lives with us at the center. And every decision, every thought, every relationship, everything about life is focused on how does that affect me? It's all about me. And we don't realize that we are walling ourselves off from other people. We're shutting down relationships. We're closing ourselves off from the very things that deep inside we desperately want, but we can't seem to help it. And God watches us run. God watches us keep trying to jump up to be better. And instead of saying, well, you know what? You're just simply getting what you deserve. Because we are. You're simply experiencing the consequences of your behavior because we are. But instead, God says, I need to do something about that. Despite the fact that we ran, God says, I'm going to run too. But instead of running away from us, he runs to us. The prophet Zephaniah says... Here's what's going to change the whole dynamic. Because the first two and a half chapters are all about judgment. It's all about judgment, judgment, wrath, judgment, judgment. And now you get to this last section and God says, here's the difference. I'm going to come and live among you. And that will change everything. There's some things you just can't do from a distance. It's it's pretty hard to parent from a distance. It's pretty hard to have a relationship from a distance. We try, and sometimes it works, but often it doesn't. I had a professor in seminary who was taught counseling, and he said, you know, there are two things you cannot do by correspondence course. One of them is counseling, and the other one is swimming. And I think that's probably true. It's kind of hard to teach swimming from a distance. And you can't save from a distance. If someone is in the bottom of a ravine, you can't from a distance say, well, let me tell you how to get out of that. You either crawl down in there with them or you let down a rope, but you have to be active about it. And saving us is something that cannot be done from a distance, and God knows that. And so God sends Jesus, and Jesus comes to close the gap between us and God and to give us an image of God, a new image of God, a re-image of God, to repair our broken, twisted perspective of God. And Jesus comes. And our natural response is to say, Jesus comes for the good people. Jesus comes for the people who've got it together. Jesus comes for the people who who understand him, who figured it all out. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Jesus comes to Nazareth. Luke 4 tells us that that Jesus comes to Nazareth, to his hometown, comes back there. It's really the first recorded sermon we have. And he goes to the synagogue and he says... I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to teach today. And he pulls out the prophet Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to give recovery of sight to the blind 
and to declare the, and to make the lame walk and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And then he puts down the scroll and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one. It doesn't sound to me like a litany of people who have it all together. It sounds like a litany of people who don't have it all together, but who recognize they need Jesus. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we finally figured it all out that he comes. It's because God loves us that he comes. And when Jesus comes, we are reminded that even God's judgment is grace. This whole prophecy leading up to this last section, all, of this, all these words about judgment that we didn't read, but they're all there and they kind of make us nervous because this, God is, is serious about this. But you understand that when you get to this part, the last section, that God is simply saying, look, the reason I'm saying this to you is to warn you. It's not because I'm so angry with you, I don't know what to do with you. It's because I want to warn you. I want to wake you up to the apathy that you, you're living. I want to wake you up to the truth. Because you're going this direction. And this direction is death and destruction. And this direction is life. And peace and joy and grace. And this is where I want you to go. But you can't see it until I jar you a little bit. And you realize, oh wait, look where I'm going. See, we have a tendency to think that God's... That that when we commit sin, when we do wrong, God is just sitting back waiting to, to jump on us and to say, I knew it. You're going to pay big time for that. Because we're all about rules. But the reality is, when I read the scriptures, and particularly the more I read the Old Testament, God warns of judgment. As a means of grace. Because he is trying to help us understand where our sinful decisions are leading us. He's sitting back not saying, man, you are going to pay big time for that. Rather, he's sitting back saying to us, look, you do realize that this behavior is taking you down a path of destruction, right? I don't want you to go down a path of destruction. I want you to experience everything that I created you to experience. So I'm going to be kind of harsh with you and I'm going to turn you around and I'm going to try to get you to change direction with me. And it's not because I'm angry with you, it's because I love you. And that's just good parenting. God doesn't punish the way we tend to punish. You know, we tend to punish because we've been embarrassed or hurt, or afraid, or anxious. We look bad. None of those things are, are motivating God. For him, it's simply the consequences. I don't want you to experience all of this. So let me turn you around. And that's why Jesus comes. God is wired for grace. And, and we have a hard time seeing that. But it is the true picture of God. And even his judgment is grace. So what do we do about it? Well, the prophet says, here's what you do as as people. Very first verse. 
Sing, O daughters and sons of Zion, and shout and rejoice. Sing and shout and rejoice. Celebrate because God has done this for you. Jesus has come. Life doesn't have to be what it is. He has come to to close the gap and to fix our brokenness and to heal us. So sing and celebrate and rejoice. You know, we talk about coming to worship and gathering together every week in order to be reminded of who God is. Because our memories are short and life is hard. And so we come together in worship to, to be reminded that God is who he says he is. But we also come in worship to declare together that we believe it's true. And we trust him. And the very act of singing and celebrating, rejoicing, shouting the greatness of God is an act of trust that even when we don't see it the way we want to, we believe it and we embrace it because we're convinced that's who God is. We celebrate. Even though, even when. And I'm convinced that this spirit of joy in God's people is the most effective witness we have to everybody else in the world. You know, too often our strategy of telling people about Jesus is connected to fear. You know, when I was young, one of the, one of the evangelism strategies would begin with the question, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? If you died tonight, why would God let you into heaven? And I've come to see a couple of problems with that. One is that it, it sends the message that being a Christian is only about getting to heaven. And I'm convinced that's sort of icing on the cake. I think being a Christian is about having your life transformed now. And living in the joy of Christ now. Being new creations now. And then experiencing eternal life too. But the other part of the problem with that strategy is that it it operates from a spirit of fear. If I can scare you enough, maybe you'll decide to follow Jesus. I mean, there were some movies that went out. Some of us talked about this recently. There were some movies when we were kids that were about the end times. And I'm telling you what, it scared you to death. I know a lot of people probably made prayers to Jesus because they were just scared to death after watching these movies. But I'm not sure fear is the best motivation for long life, long relationship, the long journey. And quite frankly, I think people are drawn to Jesus much more by joy than by fear. And if we are to be like God, and God is a God of holiness, and he is described as grace and joy and compassion and truth and mercy, then that's what we ought to look like. And we care about the brokenness of this world, and we become a presence of grace and joy in this broken world. And too often, Christians have given off the impression of not joy, but sternness. And not grace, but harshness. And that should change. Is it serious? Yeah, it's serious. But 
but it's seriousness in the joy of Christ and the grace of God through Christ. I think at the heart of this whole issue of believing, shouting, celebrating, understanding who God is and who we are in relationship to God, I think at the heart of all of that is understanding how God really feels about us. Because I think that is the I think that has been the most damaging result of sin. That we don't quite understand how important we are to God. I love the way the prophet has it, verse 17. He says, I'm coming, I'm living among you, and I want you to know that I delight in you. I delight in you. I gotta tell you, that's a hard thing for me to really believe. Doesn't mean that God likes everything that we do. But even with the things that we do that we shouldn't do and the things that we don't do that we should do, God delights in us. We're important to him. All the way back to the creation story. The biblical creation story is unlike any of the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. All those other creation stories, uh, something happens, either it's, that human beings are created either by accident or as punishment. The gods have a battle. Someone loses. They get thrown to earth. And as a part of that, they have to deal with human beings. They, the human beings are created and they have to mess with them. And they don't want to. Or somebody spills something and the earth is created and human beings come to life. And now they have to deal with human beings. And this is why in all the other ancient cultures and their religion, when it comes to worship and prayer, it's about begging God pleading with God, tricking God, manipulating God, convincing God to do good for them because they cannot fathom their gods liking them. And only in the ancient biblical story do we find God saying, I think I'll create the world and human beings because I want relationship with them. Because I like them. And I think if we could grasp that, it would change our world. It would change us. I think that's why I like what I once read from Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. He talked about how in the early centuries of the church, theologians were debating the question, if Jesus had never come, I mean, if, I'm sorry, if human beings had never sinned, would Jesus have still come anyway? And there were a number of theologians who said, yes. And the reason was simply because God likes us. And he wants relationship with us. And he wants to be close to us. And we don't really know the answer to that question because Scripture doesn't really address it. But it does seem to me that that sort of sounds like the heart of God. 
Jesus doesn't only come for a negative reason, our sin. He comes for a positive reason. Because God likes us. And he wants relationship with us. And he wants to be close to us. And he wants us to experience the fullness of life with him. And you get to the end of this prophecy, and in my trans- in the New Living Translation, the very last words are simply, I, the Lord, have spoken. Period. It's not a pipe dream. It's not the impossible dream. It's, it's not something we just really wish and hope might happen. It's truth. It's the reality. So let's celebrate and rejoice because Jesus has come. We can know God. Heavenly Father, help us to help us to get more a deeper sense. who you are and what you feel about us and why Jesus has come and help us to let you change us, set us free, transform us. Father, as we think this morning, as we come to you in prayer, we think not only about ourselves, but about the whole world. Father, this morning we pray for the work of your kingdom around the world. We think of our brothers and sisters in places of the world who don't have scriptures to read, who are punished, imprisoned, tortured because they have a Bible in their possession, because they want to meet to study the Bible. Lord, protect your people. Open up, give them more freedom to study and learn and grow and bring more scriptures to them. We pray, Father, for those who are doing your work around the world and we think of Hudson Hess and Brenda Osterhus as they work in Haiti David Heisinger, sons Luke and Gabe, as they come home for some medical issues, we pray that you will, you will help them as they travel, as they minister, as they work, as they see doctors, pour out your spirit on them. And Father, we think of the ministry of the church closer to home. We thank you for those who work with our little children in the Boom Club on Wednesday nights. This group that of children coming together to put the Bible on our minds. Lord, bless these little ones. Help them to know how much we love them and you love them. We pray for every teacher and helper and student that this time, even as young as they are, would set a foundation for their lives of knowing you. 
We pray, Father, for the ministry beyond us. And we think of Kenny Adia, United Methodist Church, and Pastor Russell. And we thank you for his ministry and the work of the church there. Continue to bless them in powerful ways as they minister to their community and beyond. May they know your grace in all that they do. And Father, we pray for the needs right here among us. We pray for all who are grieving, and we ask for your comforting presence in every sorrowing heart. We pray for all who are struggling with illness and pain. We think especially today of Karen Gardy and Carol McNeil, for Calvin and Laurel Buecher and Warren Woolsey, for Phil Getty and Evelyn Heil and Phil Muecher, for Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, for any others who may be on our hearts and our minds today. Father, we thank you for your gracious mercy upon us. As you come into this broken world among broken people who struggle with broken relationships, Father, heal our hearts. We welcome you with open arms. And we anticipate the work of Christ in us and in this world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We have a chance now to give back to God from all that he has given us as we take our tithes and offerings.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.